listening to the Citizens Podcast from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. During your lifetime, you will on average speak 860,341,500 words. And for silly guys like me, go ahead and double that. Maybe even 2.5 it. And it leads to this big focus on, you know, what are our first words? What are baby's first word? Usually it's mama or for the overeager dad like me telling my kid dada, dada every single day. Still went with mama, both kids. But we focus on first words and it also calls us to focus kind of on our last words. And if you're lucky enough to die surrounded by loved ones, it's probably something like I love you or praise God or something beautiful like that. But history gives us quite a range of people's last words. The noted French philosopher, a critic of Christianity, also a pretty funny guy, Voltaire was sitting on his deathbed when a French priest was trying to encourage him to say, renounce the devil, Voltaire, renounce the devil, turn to Jesus. And when he was told to renounce the devil, Voltaire said this as his last words. This is no time to be making new enemies. Woof. Some people are pretty honest. Jack Daniels said this on his deathbed. One last drink, please. He had drunkenly kicked the safe, gotten tetanus, and died. Other ones were full of surprise. Steve Jobs said this. Oh, wow, oh, wow, oh, wow. And died with his sister. Often, People speak a simple beauty. It's no time for a monologue. But the hardest working man in show business, Mr. James Brown, said this, I'm going away tonight, as if he was on to the next show. Emily Dickinson, the great poet, said, I must go in, for the fog is rising. And Harriet Tubman In 1913, surrounded by friends and family, sung a hymn that finished in Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, and passed on to our Savior's arms. And today we deal with David's last words. What will the great king say with his final moments with Israel, his final moments on earth, and how do his final words make sense of his life and point us to Jesus? Because remember, David rose to kingship. He ruled well for a season. And then he made a real mess of things with sexual immorality, murder, a cover-up. But God couldn't let any of that stand. He revealed and exposed it all to the nation. David repents. He's forgiven. He has a personal revival. But now he must deal with the fallout of all of his sins. And the Lord told him what the fallout would be. He says, I have three consequences for you. First, the child of your sexual immorality with Bathsheba, that child will die. And that has already happened. The second consequence was evil and the sword of violence that you've brought into your life, David, isn't going to depart from your house. Instead, it's going to wreak havoc. And the third consequence the Lord gave is David will be shamed publicly by someone else sleeping with his wives in a public way. And as all these things come to pass in the rest of 2 Samuel, the book is a mess. As you read it, it's like reading about a house that's just 
on fire because as the consequences come, they just come one after another. The beams are on fire as this episode ends. This part of the house is on fire and it just keeps going. And it becomes this house of horrors that David is trying to live through and for the most part, trying to live through faithfully though he's still making mistakes and trying to keep it together. And King David's house begins to burn with the sword story of Ammon in 2 Samuel 13. Ammon is one of David's sons, and he claims he's in love, and he's in love with his half-sister, Tamar. And so he tricks Tamar into a scenario where they're all alone, and then he rapes her despite her protests. And verse 15 captures this evil. Then Ammon hated her with a very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he loved her. And Ammon said to her, get up and go. And we see very quickly, Ammon is not consumed by love, but lust. And lust leads to taking. Love leads to giving. But lust always leads to taking. And if you're not married, I tell you, and you're dating, I just ask, make sure it's love. Evidenced by a giving and willing heart. Not by lust and a taking spirit. Lust is never love. Tamar is violated and ashamed. She goes to her brother, another of David's sons. Verse 21 says this. It says, Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. And when King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Ammon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Ammon because he had violated his sister Tamar. And the tragedy begins to multiply here. As horrific as that is, then King David, the one guy who's Tamar's father and the king, the guy who can actually do something about it, he just gets angry and stews on it. He stands by and does nothing. He refuses justice towards Ammon. And here's what happens. When we refuse to do justice in any arena of life, we allow evil to exist, persist, and multiply. God's people are called to be a just people. And when David abandons his role as dad and abandons his role as king, it crushes Tamar, no doubt. It leaves Ammon in his sin to continue on in whatever path he is on. And it leaves Absalom smoldering with righteous anger for his sister that eventually boils over to unrighteous anger. As Absalom, two years later, invites Ammon out to a party, gets him kind of drunk in a wine field and says, when he's drunk enough, go ahead and behead him. Go ahead and cut him up for his sins. And we see David's house is completely on fire. He has his daughter grievously raped. He has a son that's now dead, and he has another son who's on the run, just lost into the wind in another city. And it takes years to reconcile with Absalom. David's pictured here as a man slow to justice, no justice for Tamar, and slow to mercy for Absalom. You can't figure that one out either. But eventually Absalom becomes this sort of celebrity when he comes back to Jerusalem and back into Israel. He becomes this noted guy, the guy who got the justice when dad wouldn't do anything. And the people love him for it. Chapter 14 describes them like this. It says, Now in all Israel, there's no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. That's a handsome guy. 
And when he cut his hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head, 200 shekels by the king's weight. That's a lot of hair. That's two and a half pounds of hair. Who was that guy that was huge and had the great hair, got hit by a goose on the roller coaster? Who was that guy? Fabio! Found him. Should have become Absalom. That's this guy. Two and a half pounds is a lot of hair. And the people just start to fall in love with this new prince. Hey man, David's full of scandals, but at least this guy gets it done. And he's not bad looking either. And he starts to be celebrated just like David once upon a time was this celebrated young guy. But Absalom in his heart is slowly, bitterly crafting a rebellion. Verse Chapter 15 tells us this. After Absalom got himself a chariot, horses, 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, hey, from what city are you from? So people are coming, bringing their problems, bringing their complaints to the king, coming to Jerusalem, and he would see them coming and say, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. You got a prince right here. Are you sure you need to go all the way, all the way to, to the palace? You got a prince right here, man. What city are you from? And when he said, oh, your servant is of such and such city and such and such tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there's no man designated by the king to hear you. He'd cut him off at the gate and say, hey, if you go to the palace, there's no one even there. There's not even a magistrate for your city. Bummer. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were the judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me and I would give him justice. He tells a small lie, kind of a big lie, and then sets him up as the good king, really, at the gate. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him, kiss him, greet him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. See, Absalom carefully positioned himself to be manipulate Israel to say, I would be a better king. He probably took the distrust that David had sown by his own scandals and then multiplied it and said, hey, he doesn't really care about you. They're not going to hear your case, but I will. Wouldn't it be great if I were your king? In the house of David, the fire could be out now. But instead, Absalom's kind of walking around the outside splashing gasoline on things. This goes on for four years. So we see a rather passive David. News had to get back to him that Absalom was stopping people at the gate and manipulating them. But we learn this way about our tongue from the book of James. About our tongue in chapter 3 of James, it says this, So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a force is set ablaze by such a small fire. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. That's what Absalom does with his tongue every day for four years. And after four years, and David's passively participating by not doing anything, 
Absalom makes his move. Chapter 15, verse 10. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king of Hebron. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. David hears of this. How could he not? There's people shouting he's king in the streets. David flees the city, flees with his household, flees with some of these mighty men. And we find David's back in a cave, in a cave again. Odds against him, things falling apart. Chapter 16, the final consequence arrives as Absalom ends up sleeping with David's concubines and wives on the palace roof under a tent. It could not be more grotesque and public and strange. And he defiles the entire household. And note how quickly everything just changed in the story. Absalom went from righteous anger at Ammon to unrighteous anger murdering him to basically committing the same sin of Ammon with his father's wives of incestual sexual assault. Things happen quickly as pride, greed, hate, and bitterness take root in Absalom's heart. Eventually, we come to this great battle. It's David versus his son Absalom for the kingdom. It's the high-stakes poker game finally happens of these two brooding forces. But we see David's heart has changed. Look what he tells his general in chapter 18, verse 5. And the king ordered Joab, that's his chief commander, and Abisha and Itta, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. And we see this change. That David wants reconciliation with his son even though the relationship's been a complete mess. He's messed it up. His son's making a real mess of things. But we start to see the heart of God formed in David. And he doesn't want Absalom to die, but wants to pull him close. But the battle turns into devastation quickly. Remember how I said the tongue sets the whole forest fire ablaze from James 3? Look at verse 6 of chapter 18. So the army went out into a field against Israel, but the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. That would be not very common. Usually you fought in a big open field, and that's when it happened, or you sieged a city. But this time, they get out in the wilderness of the woods, and it's a no-holds-bar fight. This is a civil war in Israel. It's one supposed king against the actual king on the run and his men. Verse 7, And the men of Israel defeated, were defeated there by the servants of David, who were much fewer. And the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country. The forest devoured more people that day than the sword. One day, 20,000 people dying is an incredibly high number for hand-to-hand combat in the woods. Imagine that night, 20,000 homes losing a father, brother, or son in a single day. And it says the majority of the deaths weren't even from each other, but were from the terrain, were from getting lost, from starving, from running out of water, from animals. It says the forest 
devoured them. And this is the land, the physical promised land lashing out at the people of God. See, in Leviticus 18 states, if Israel is unrighteous by being sexually immoral or idolatrous, it says that the land would spit them out, would puke them out for their sin. And this is the forest being used as God's judgment here against Israel. Saying, y'all weren't meant for civil war. Israel was supposed to be united, a just people, a righteous people under God. But here they are fighting one another over the sins of incest, murder, and idolatry of power. God is calling what is ugly, ugly. What are y'all doing? David's sins continue to burn the house down. And then the forest itself takes a hold of Absalom. And takes a hold of him by his prized feature. It's another one of those paying people back to their face moments with the Lord. Verse 9. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. And Absalom is riding on a mule. And the mule went under thick branches of great oak. And his head got caught fast in the oak. And he was suspended between heaven and earth. What a beautiful line. What an interesting line of the peril of this man. Is his hair caught? Is his head caught? I don't know. His feet aren't touching the ground because, well, the mule that was under him just kept going. He's left there helpless, dangling in a tree. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, the commander, behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. We see Joab ignores David's command altogether. He goes right up, takes three javelins and pushes them into helpless Absalom's chest. And he dies. And we see King David's reaction. The war is over. But verse 33 says this. And the king was deeply moved. And he went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, My son, my son. The same king who took four plus years to talk to his son face to face after the murder of Ammon is now doing anything to take it back and even switch places. So you see this development in King David starting to see what's important to wish the house wasn't burning down. It takes responsibility for his sins see david is flawed but he's flawed but he's growing he once refused mercy for absalom and now freely gives it in his tears he once refused to give justice to tamar against Ammon, but in the fallout of this civil war scripture is careful to note just how justice and merciful filled david is in dealing with his enemies he brings the nation back together by his actions And it's a painful evolution to see David growing, but he's growing more godly as he faces the consequences of his sin. And so too with us. The difficulties of this life, the godly discipline in our life is not meant to destroy us, but to develop our hearts. When bad things happen, sometimes it it can feel so overwhelming, but truly God is doing work in those moments. 
Even though David is struggling, he also is starting to see the goodness and glory of God. See, our life isn't meant to repeat our own mistakes and sins over and over. We have a chance in every consequence of life to reflect and change with God. Because many of the things that happen in our life, they're going to happen again. Maybe not the same people, maybe not the same place, maybe not the exact same situation, but opportunities for mercy, opportunities for justice, opportunities to trust God in difficulty. Man, those are the things that make a life. Those are the things that make meaning before God. And they're going to happen again. But God doesn't want you on a hamster wheel of failure or mistakes. Instead, he wants you to grow and change and be able to give mercy and to be able to trust God and to be able to give justice and not stay quiet. Let your story be long, but don't let your story live on a hamster wheel. Your past doesn't have to define your future with God. You are not doomed or cursed in Jesus, but full of life and can change over and over to be more like our Savior. David grows, he's been high, he's been low, but he's growing with God. And the story God wants to tell is not a story of you never failing, but a story of a God who never fails you. That's how God starts to be at the center of your story, as he already is the center of the universe's story. And in the final scene of the book, David takes a census of all of his soldiers in Israel before going to war. And that may not seem like a big deal. It's in chapter 24. But remember, Israel is a different nation. It's a theocracy where God fights their battles and is their God. And to take a census is David choosing to trust the army's strength instead of the Lord's. And Joab, among others, say, hey man, don't do this. It's an obvious no-no. They know they're not supposed to. And then David just orders it anyway. And David, this time, after sinning, he immediately repents. Verse 10 says this, But David's heart struck him after he numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I've sinned greatly in what I've done, but now, O Lord, please take away the inequity of your servant. That's a fancy word for sin. For I have done very foolishly. His quick repentance is growth, but his sin brings pestilence on Israel. And when David cries out at seeing the destruction that's happening in the nation, he says this in verse 17. David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned. I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and my father's house. We see this great evolution of David. In the last chapter of the book, he's crying out with a Christ-like prayer to say, could I take their place? Can I take the place of the sheep? And we know that he can't. He can't. He's willing to die for the people. And it's like Jesus, but he can't. But God tells him, go make an altar. I want you to build an altar to me, and I want it to be on Mount Moriah. And if you remember, Mount Moriah is where Abraham was told to sacrifice his son Isaac up until the Lord provided a ram for him. That same Mount Moriah will be where David's son Solomon will build the temple of God. And God highlights this to David, that I will be the solution for your sin in this moment. I will be providing the salvation. David will not, 
but God will. That sin needs sacrifice and that God will be the one providing the sacrifice. Just like with Abraham and Isaac. Just like with his own son, Jesus. And David spells out in his last words from his deathbed that the grace from the true king is the only salvation. David doesn't spend his last words recounting his good deeds. He doesn't spend them wallowing in his sins. But rather, he declares a prophecy from God by the Spirit. And he says this in 2 Samuel 23 about the coming king. Look with me. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. David's growing in justice, but the true king is only ever perfectly just towards all people. He's just over men and he's just before God. The true king will be like the sun and the rain that makes us live and grow. Think about that as a picture of salvation, church. That you are like grass and it's the Lord that is the sun and the rain that makes you come up. When you want the Lord to do a new thing, to bring salvation, to change you, to heal you, to comfort you, he's the one who's the sun. He's the one who's the heat. He's the one of the water that makes you sprout and grow strong. That's the picture that God gave David to say, one day there's a ruler and a king coming who's still going to do this, even though you blew it, David, over and over and over. The prophecy doesn't change. The covenant of 2 Samuel 7 isn't altered. It's God that's going to make the sacrifice. It's God who will be the ruler. David responds to the prophecy given to him. His last words in verse 5, For does not my house stand so with God? For He has made me an everlasting covenant and ordered all things in secure. For will He not cause to prosper all my help and all my desire? But worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away. David's hope, he sees this prophecy is for him and for everyone else that God will still bring a Savior through his house, even though he sinned. That his hope as the years grow by aren't more so in David and his ability to rule. He blows the census as the last chapter of the book. His hope increases that a Savior's coming, that a true king will rule. And on that day, there won't be any clouds. God will be true even if we're false. God is saving sinners by his gospel, not sinners saving themselves. And that's good news for a sinner like David, and it's good news for sinners like us. David's hope is growing more sure, not less sure, as the years roll by and he meets God's grace again and again. He doesn't earn it, he doesn't deserve it, and neither do we. That's what makes it grace. It's a gift, not by works but by the gracious hand of God. And grace doesn't mean we choose to sin more. As David says, be a worthless person like thorns to be thrown away, as thorns symbolize sins in the Bible. Grace makes us want to change and grow and be like God. 
You must first be served by the king, King Jesus, before you can ever serve him. He must serve you in salvation long before you can serve him. And David learns this, that his looking forward is not to him getting it right, but that Jesus will come at last. Church, what will your last words be? Will they be about the true king and what he's done? Will they be about trusting the true king like David? If your faith is in Christ, your house, your life is secure in him. And nothing can ever change that. May our last words be good of our great Savior. You've been listening to the Citizens Church Podcast. Special thanks to Murphy DX, who recorded our theme music. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama, you can visit us on our website at citizensbhm.com or on the usual suspects, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.